Welcome to episode 19 of Murder We Write. I'm your host, Carol Goodman Kaufman. On this podcast, I get to talk with crime writers whose short stories and novels run the gamut from cozies to domestic thrillers. We'll learn from them about their craft, their process, and the business of writing. My guest today is Joanne Mead, a writer, educator, and researcher. She now writes biocrime and bioterror thriller novels, screenplays, short stories, magazine articles, and even pieces in medical journals. So let's jump right in and get started. Joanne, welcome to Murder We Write. You know, everybody I talk with on this podcast is a crime writer, but a few have actual professional background that informs their writing. You write about really frightening scenarios involving the potential horrors of modern medical technology, weapons of mass destruction. What is your background that gives you the information and experience you need to write these thrillers? Carol, thanks for having me. I'm a biologist. I started teaching in California, uh, biology, other sciences. Went to London, where I taught in an American school, and then on to Moscow uh, during the Cold War. I taught at the Anglo-American School, uh, where I married an Anglo. Um, And from there, we moved on to Africa, to Zimbabwe, uh, post-war uh, country, and um, taught in the African schools. When we came back to America, I, I branched out, went into uh, medical and surgical education, and uh, uh, taught surgeons how to do new techniques. It was my uh, blood and gore phase. I worked a lot with cadavers. Um, After that stint, I got into um, biotech. And it was the whole thing of dual-use technology, the the life-saving drugs, uh, and the potential for harm at the same time, and crimes of genetic design. Now, I did a lot of research, too. I worked in research um, at writing articles uh, with surgeons on um, disasters, mass casualties, weapons uh, of mass destruction. This is where the biologic agents come in. And in my novels, the murder weapons are not the usual guns or knives or bombs. Actually, there's not that much blood and gore. Uh the weapons are microbes, biologic agents, bioweapons. They're the tiny pinprick. But my biocrimes are crimes of genetic design. Okay, I have a two-part question now. What was the impetus to start writing fiction? And number two, who are your role models in the genre? So why did I start writing fiction? Um, I was working in biotech. And I was constantly worried about biotech waste and possible dumping of it in the state of Rhode Island. I asked a lot of questions, but I was told, oh, they're only dead cells, so no harm done. So I was trying to make sense out of just a lot of chaos around me. I mean, don't we all? Well, bad things happened. And in 2006, 2007, there was an outbreak of severe uh, disease in children. The kids were very ill with pneumonia, five times more than usual. 
Some children died from uh, meningitis. And somehow this common wimpy bacteria had morphed into a superbug. It mutated, and I wanted to know why it happened. So some of the schools in the state were closed. CDC came in to investigate. And that's pretty much the inciting event that got me writing. I I wanted to make sense. Uh, So I wrote my first novel, Underlying Crimes. It's a medical mystery, you know, a crime story. So it has a host of uh, corrupt uh, politicians, corporate criminals, crooked cops, and two main um, characters, Rhode Island sleuths, uh, Joe and Jeremy Blair. They investigate crimes of genetic design. So this is, they feature in all my biocrime novels. Um, Okay, and who are my role models? I think um, Margaret Margaret Atwood, uh, and it was her book Oryx and Crake that really got me thinking. Uh, dystopian, kind of apocalyptic, post-pandemic uh, world uh, with hybrid creatures. Um, so she um, got me interested. Other authors, uh, Richard Preston, the Cobra event was an attempted bioterrorism attack on the U.S. Um, Also Michael Crichton, Aldous Huxley. Okay, so you've got the kernel of an idea, the the crime, the, the murder weapon, as it were. So where do you go from there? Do you choose your protagonist first? Do you choose the setting first? Do you outline a plot? What is your process? So when I started writing Underlying Crimes, I chose my protagonist, Joe Blair, uh, first. So she's a biocrime sleuth. She thinks she knows who the culprits are, who caused the outbreak in children. So uh, DNA expert. Her husband's a digital expert. The setting is obvious. It's in Rhode Island, also bits of Boston. Now, did I outline a plot? No. I created new characters as I went, and but the entire plot wasn't really clear to me. I So I wrote a script first. I, I wrote 100 pages of dialogue. I like uh, screenplay writing because, uh, to me, everything is a movie. Um, now, in my second novel, That's Tiger, Tiger, I invented uh, an anti-hero, this sultry lab scientist. Uh, she's from Shenzhen, China. So she's Tiger Girl. She manipulates viruses and men, and her love of money is what drives her. Uh, Again, I started with dialogue uh, in a bedroom scene in Hong Kong. Uh, She's with her nihilist lover, an Italian professor. So he's a new character, and he plots a bioterror attack on America using his students uh, infected with her tiger flu virus. I wrote this before the pandemic. Um, my settings drive the action. So we've got our sleuths in Rhode Island investigating clues, uh, science, uh, cryptic tweets on social media, and the clues take them to a new setting to Copenhagen, Denmark, and to Italy. And they're working with a secretive group, the partners, um, to track down uh, Tiger Girl. Now, my 
third novel designer baby, uh, Tiger Girl, comes back. She has an alias. She's cosmetically changed. She's on the run in Sweden. She's got a new scam to make money. Uh, it's the promise of gene-edited uh, designer babies. Uh, there's two new characters, rogue scientists from Rhode Island, who also go to Gothenburg, Sweden, for this embryo gene editing conference. And Joe and Jeremy end up in Sweden. All hell breaks loose. There's an international chase in Sweden and Norway you know, for the bioterrorist Tiger Girl. Okay, let's go back to setting for a minute. You live in Rhode Island, so you know what it looks like, what it sounds like, smells like, what the iconic places are, what the special foods are that people in Rhode Island like to eat. But Sweden, have you spent time there? And if not, how do you know what to write? I have a special connection in Sweden. My grandkids were born there. Uh, they lived all over Scandinavia. They, we've chased them from Sweden, Norway, to, to Denmark. Now, when people travel, they travel by buses, trains, bikes. Bicycles are just everywhere. Uh, you have to watch out that you don't walk in the bike lanes, uh, but the pedestrian lanes are well marked. Many people never own a car, and cars are half the size of our SUVs. Uh, most people live in apartments or condo blocks. Uh, Scandinavian countries are modern, they're clean, they're efficient. Crime rates are low, gun rights are limited. But we travel a lot by train. Uh, trains run on time. And in my book, uh, Designer Baby, there's a train chase on the Flam Railway. It starts in Bergen, Norway. Uh, goes to Oslo. So how do I find places? Well, sometimes I plan ahead. Uh, I look for offbeat places. We get suggestions from family. Sometimes just sheer accident. Another thing that unites Scandinavia is coffee and the pastries. There are just little eclectic coffee houses that are full of yummy smells. Um, in Sweden, uh, they love their fika break. Now, that's strong coffee in the morning and afternoon, and that's a way of life. Uh, we always look for comfy, arty ones with the overstuffed furniture. Um, but you'll have a pastry, a cinnamon bun. Norwegians prefer crispy pancakes and waffles that are oozing with chocolate and mounds of sour cream and raspberry jam. Uh, I think Danes still have the best pastry. Swedes love heavy metal music. They also love the poppy sounds of ABBA. My favorite hotel is in Gothenburg, Sweden, the, the riverside. It became a setting uh, in my uh, last book. But the hotel is science-themed. Uh, there's It's amusing. It's whimsical. The bed paper. The bedrooms are wallpapered with DNA strands and Albert Einstein. The food, excellent, fresh cod, uh, but avoid the pickled herring for breakfast. you got to love those Vikings. You've got my mouth watering with the description of chocolate oozing out of pastries, Joanne. The writer Anne Cleves has talked about setting as character. Do you believe your setting in Sweden figures as a character in your stories? And if so, how? So, uh, is my setting in Sweden one of my characters? Oh, of course, but like a character, you really need to get to know a place. Uh, nothing beats the feel of a place better than being there. The, the feel changes with the seasons, the weather, the time of day, you know, time frame, the years you're there. 
Now, summer vacation in Sweden isn't enough, and you can't really know what the Swedes are like. Probably can never know what the Swedes are like because they're very private people. But you and you never really understand a place if you don't speak much of the language. You know, I, I dabble a lot with Duolingo, but you can get the feel, the vibe, the, you know, the smell of the baked goods, the feel of impending doom on a gloomy, dreary, rainy day are hopeful for the future when it's bright and sunny. Uh, in June, the high school kids parade in their cars and big trucks. They, they're just so adorable in their sailor suits. They, they're partying. They drink at 18. Uh, they sound their horns. They celebrate their graduation. So you either love it or you hate it. But like a character, Sweden is complicated. You know, despite its veneer, it has its own personality, its moods, its culture, its socialist system, its very liberal ideas. But there's contradictions. Uh, there's a dark side that lurks, signs of right-wing extremism, you know, criminal gangs. But it's the action, the motions around you that you feel. The electric buses whoosh by, you know, rather than rumbling. There's electric-powered trains. They hum. And when our grandkids were babies, uh, there were special carriages for their prams, their baby carriages, um, also for bicycles. So the serendipity of chance happenings, there's interactions with people. But it's the rhythm of the place, the rhythm of the speech, the rhythm of uh, things in motion. And photography, of course, is essential to me. It sparks my memories, inspires me. Um, and my photo journals really allow for a lot of reflection. So I write short stories. What I, I'll focus on incidents in uh, a foreign place. And then later, um, I pull out those stories like a, a grab bag and uh, stories will come out of the setting. So you really know your setting, Joanne, all the senses, from sights to sounds to smells to tastes. By the way, I happen to love pickled herring, and I would have it every day if I could. But I want to go back to something you said about how private the Swedes are as a people. So how do you write a Swedish character given that challenge? Or are people's traits simply universal? Carol, um, there's more to my connection with Sweden. Uh, Gothenburg, Gothenburg, goes way back. Now, our grandchildren were born in Sweden, but they're British, because our daughter was born in England. But my character, Lars, in Designer Baby, the Swedish cosmetic surgeon, comes from knowing two Swedish surgeons in Gothenburg. Now, 25 years ago, when I first worked in uh, surgeon training, I flew uh, to Gothenburg once a month for about a year. I'd meet up with a, a small group of surgeons, U.S. and European, uh, for dinner, for talks. Next day, we'd go to the OR and watch a, a new biotech technique. And we'd have lunch with the surgeon and his wife. They spoke uh, English. They were quiet, humble, not at all showy, uh, what we'd call reserved, but over that year, they became my friends. Now, I was much younger. They were more like a afar and more to me, uh, father and mother. But they made uh, sure that I would eat enough of their baked cod with this cheese souffle uh, sauce. They served it, uh, at, you know, informally, like a family would for lunch. And uh, 
so they were extremely kind and gracious to me and the the visiting surgeons. I, I think you'll you'd find uh, basic human kindness everywhere you go, but people show it differently and in a lot of different ways. And then more recently, when we returned um, to Sweden as grandparents, Gothenburg became the setting for my novel. So another accident in life, kind of serendipity. But Carol pickled herring. Well, it's full of good vitamins, the B's and D's and all those omegas. So maybe I should give it another try? Or maybe I'll just stick with the cod. Yes, pickled herring. I love the stuff. In fact, after we're done here, I may just go out and buy some. But back to writing. What books are on your nightstand? What are your favorite genre? And do you take inspiration from any of them? I seem to go through phases on what books I read. Uh, anything with the word spy in the title? John le Carey's were wonderful, complex, so well written. Just finished Tet- Tess Gerritsen's The Spy Coast. Pretty lightweight by comparison. Um, I like thrillers, murder mystery, espionage, crime of all sorts. Nordic crime thrillers like uh, Stieg Larsson and Joe Nesbo. Cold Scandinavian settings. Book set in Moscow. Paul Goldberg, uh, The Dissident. Uh, set in Cold War, late 1970s Moscow. There's a, a young refusenik and a, a Jewish wedding with his activist girlfriend. Now, I met Paul Goldberg at the Boston Book Festival, and we had plenty to talk about since my husband and I also got married in Moscow during those same exciting times. Memoirs, they're fun. Uh, Marie Ivanovich, her Lessons from the Edge, um, memoir of her life in the foreign U.S. Foreign Service, um, Moscow, London, she was ambassador to Ukraine, another Moscow memoir, James Holbrook, an American military attache in the USSR, 1979 to 1981. Now, those are the same years I lived there teaching at the Anglo-American School. Two of his kids, very bright, they were in my classes until one day they came to school and told everyone that they had to leave Moscow. Dad had already flown out, but they didn't know why. But he'd been set up by the KGB, an entrapment by a mysterious Katya or Natasha. Honey pots happen, not just in spy novels. So, Joanne, do you ever get confused that what you're reading is actually something you've lived or vice versa? Now, that's a confusing double-barreled question. So let's start with the first. Do I confuse what I read with what I've lived? Now, I don't confuse reading fiction or other stories with my own life. Sometimes there are similarities in experience, you know, in feelings, emotions. And it's fun to find people or characters in a book or story that uh, have been where you've been, in the same physical space or in the same state of mind. I purposely look for stories that might help me reflect on my life. For instance, I looked up Moscow memoirs on Amazon, Google. uh, I used some other searches, too, but I found other people's stories. Sometimes they overlapped. Surprisingly, there weren't that many 
but no two people's lives are ever the same. The second question, do I confuse what I've lived with what I read? Now, my life has been a whirlwind. I I tend to remember the best of times, not the worst. But reading stories, whether fiction or factual, might help you reflect uh, on your life. But no, the two never become one. Uh, They never become the same to me. But then again, I do believe that the real can be imagined and that the imagined can be real. Joanne, thanks so much for joining me today on Murder We Write and for bringing us into your international bio-world of crime fighting. This has been fun. And by the way, just this morning, I did go out and buy a very large jar of pickled herring. Oh, my. Carol, this has been so much fun. I'm hoping we can do this again. Thanks for having me on your show. Bye. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Please join me next time for episode 20 of Murder We Write. Who will our guest be? That's the mystery. Short Cast Club.